The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I'm convinced that there is much more analogy in human birth than the theologians have understood. I believe that there may well be a time in the life of each believer when he has already been begotten by the Father according to his sovereign will and when he has not yet come forth from the darkness of the womb of this mysterious process of the new birth. But be sure of this fact, that when we are brought forth, we are alive in Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word, as taught by Dr. Barnhouse, is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, First, the Lord. Have you ever heard the popular expression, He cannot see the forest for the trees? This describes someone who is so wrapped up in minute details that he fails to see the big picture and does not have an overview of what is really important. Likewise, we as believers can get so focused on issues that are secondary and even trivial that we fail to grasp the most vital truths of God's Word. Dr. Barnhouse explains why the sovereignty of God is the most important doctrine in the Bible and how understanding it can transform your spiritual life. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Acts chapter 3 and verses 25 and 26. Our text reads, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant, and he sent him to bless you, by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, with the message, First, the Lord. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness and rejoice in thy sovereignty. When we were dead in sins, thou didst love us, and didst draw us to thyself. We thank thee that when Christ rose from the dead, he came back to those who had treated him so ill. O our God, may we feed upon this love, and love thee more in return. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Today I want to speak to you on the fact that when Christ rose from the dead, he came back and sent the apostles to those who had murdered him. 
Now, we live in a day when the trivial often takes the place of the important. In all probability, there is nothing new about this. Since man first fell away from God, every generation has had his old desires and lusts to contend with. When our hearts yearn for higher things, we soon learn that a force within us holds us back from reaching them. The man who is not born again is without wings. He has the desire to fly, but the downward pull of gravity is greater than any force that he can exercise in the upward direction. He is destined, therefore, to be earthbound in the deepest sense. Now, when we have new life in Christ, we are given wings, and the power to soar is ours in Christ. But even after we are certain of this new life, we are aware of forces that pull us down. Paul, who knew the reality of spiritual wings more than any man, was forced to cry out, nevertheless, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Now recognizing these principles, Paul goes on to show us how, in spite of the forces that hold us earthbound, there is a way whereby we can rise and stretch our wings and go onward and upward in the life that Christ has planned for us. I do not believe that there is any growth without recognizing the principles under which God works. He always puts first things first. And taking our Bibles and looking at the things to which he gives priority, we come to some very interesting conclusions and establish principles whereby we can grow properly. If these principles are not recognized, there may be the appearance of growth, but it will be a false growth like those cankers which cause some vegetables to sprout to twice their normal size, but with a growth that is like that of a cancer, a wild multiplication of cells that ultimately brings death. True holiness comes following the revelation of God as to which things are first. Take a good concordance and study the word first. If we do this, we can arrange the passages in an order that can guide us in our spiritual progress. The most important first is the first of the sovereignty of God. This first is the object of our present study. Other firsts will come later. If we do not put the sovereignty of God as first of all firsts, we will never enter into the principles of spiritual flight. I remember very well the visit to our home during my boyhood of a member of the United States Cavalry. In that day, there were few automobiles and no airplanes. The army still used horses, and the cavalry was a most important and glamorous branch of the service. Our cavalryman had a troop flag which he gave to me, and it hung on my wall for some time, Troop M, 14th Cavalry. One day, in speaking about the relative importance of his branch of the service, he said, the most important thing in the armed forces is a cavalry general. After that, there's a cavalry colonel and a cavalry major, a cavalry captain, a cavalry lieutenant, a cavalry sergeant, and a cavalry trooper. And then there's the cavalry horse. And then there's nothing followed by nothing followed by a general in the infantry. 
Well, we laughed about it, and I forgot the incident until one day when I was meditating on the importance of various doctrines. What is the most important doctrine? And then I remembered this illustration, and it struck me with great force that the most important doctrine in the Bible is that of the sovereignty of God. Our God is God the Lord. Beside him there is no other God. Now we might say that there is no second doctrine. There's nothing, there's nothing after that. There is the sovereignty of God, and there he is, Lord over all his creation. After several blanks, since no doctrine can be put in second place to the sovereignty of God, then there come the doctrines concerning the attributes of God, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after many more blank spaces, there comes the doctrines about which Christians are divided. How should the church be governed? What should be the forms and manners of the ordinance of worship? Oh, is it not strange that Christians should be so divided on these doctrines which come so low down on the list of doctrinal importance? and that they quarrel over them at the expense of proclaiming the more vital doctrines. Is it not strange? No, it is not strange when we think of the nature of our nature and how prone we are to allow things of our atmosphere to drag us downward, even as ice may form on the wings of an airplane and drag it to a catastrophic end. The verse that best illustrates the point I'm making is found in the third chapter of the book of Acts. Peter was preaching in the temple after the lame man had been healed. He proclaimed the death of Christ and placed the responsibility on his hearers. And then, after nailing down their guilt, he said, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God gave to your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your posterity shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then he continues, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amazing, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ is taken by wicked men and treated shamefully and viciously. They have cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Then they nail him to a cross while they rage about him like bulls excited by the smell of blood. And they sneer and they jeer. And yet, within a few weeks, God pours the Holy Spirit upon the little band of believers and sends them back to the murderers to proclaim peace, pardon, and salvation. God sent him to you first. What an example of the sovereignty of God. There in the very city in which he had been despised and rejected, practically in the shadow of the cross where he had been nailed, he comes back in his disciples to show his hands and his side and to tell them that he does not have anything against them. The angels may have cried out, They're killing the Son of God! But the Father answers as he raises Christ from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit to earth, Go tell them that I love them. Go to them first. Now the purpose in coming first to those who had killed his son, he states most definitely, was to bless you. Surely God himself has established the example according to which all life shall be lived. The Lord Jesus had preached it, and now the Heavenly Father practiced. This is it. Christ said, I say to you that here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
pray for those who abuse you. And when Christ himself becomes the victim of his enemies, God the Father loves them. When they hate Christ, the Father comes to them with good. When they revile and curse, he blesses them. And when they abuse him, the Father comes to restore them to love and to victory. Now, the form of the Greek verb here carries great force. It's a present participle, and it cannot be understood apart from a paraphrase. Phillips renders it, It was to you first that God sent his servant after he had raised him up to bring you great blessing by turning every one of you away from his evil ways. And it would be even nearer to the original if we could introduce the idea that in the resurrection, the Lord God brought Jesus Christ from the tomb in a procedure that made Christ the source of all blessing. Out of his death comes life. So that his resurrection becomes the fountain of all the blessings that man can ever need. Here is pardon from sin and power over sin. For in turning men away from their iniquities, God brings them into the greatest of all blessings. Those who had departed from him through sin, and that covers all of the race, are now brought back into oneness with God. All of this is sovereign grace. God did it because it pleased him to do it. For us, living centuries after the original act of sovereign grace, the wonder lies in the fact that the process has never ceased. The fountain still flows. The blessing is still available in our day. The blessing consists in turning us away from our iniquities. We are not blessed in sin, but we are turned from sin. When the angel announced to Mary the name that should be given to her son, it was in similar terms. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Two writers discussed the question, must Christ be Lord to be Savior? When a man is born again, is it necessary for him to have Christ as Lord as well as trust in Christ as Savior? An American argued that it was possible to be saved by believing in Christ as Savior without believing in him as Lord. A Britisher showed that it was impossible to have true faith in the Savior without at the same time acknowledging him as Lord. My sympathies lie with the argument of the Britisher. God makes a man alive through the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. In that instant, the individual has been made a partaker of the divine nature, and that new life must acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. That includes the acceptance of Christ as both Lord and Savior. These two brothers in Christ were arguing in the field of theoretical theology. Now when it comes right down to practical Christian living, they're undoubtedly in accord. When I was in my late teens, I believed and testified that I had been saved when I was 15. Later, I remembered the thoughts of my heart when I was eight, and I realized that the life of God was within me by that age. And then I thought back earlier to my fifth birthday, when a man asked me what I was going to do when I grew up. I replied that I was going to preach. Then I asked my mother if I had sung, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She replied that I had known and sung this hymn when I was two. 
Now, I'm completely convinced that I was already alive in Christ at that age. The Holy Spirit who indwelt my father and mother had quickened me and made me alive from my earliest consciousness. Now, this belief, of course, is based on the utter and absolute conviction that divine life precedes faith. God makes us alive, and with that new life we believe. With that new life we own Jesus Christ as Lord. My obedience as well as my faith ever soared in increasing parallel spirals. The common center of both faith and obedience was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in my heart, and therefore I believed that he was my Savior. I began to obey him in some spheres, and then in increasing spheres, and soon he was my Lord. In all of my life, there was absolute certainty of faith in Christ as my Savior. Now, this did not keep me from going astray. Even as Abraham lied, and Moses was arrogant, and David was hateful and lustful, and Peter was cowardly and stubborn. When I was in the army, there was a period when I was completely and utterly out of the will of God. There were occasions during that time when I preached faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. From that experience, I believe that I know what Peter would have answered if someone had stopped him while running from his cursing denial of his Lord. Peter, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as you once said? Peter would have given the man a withering look and replied, Of course, you blithering idiot, of course he is the Lord, and he's my Lord. The reason that I'm weeping is that I have denied my Lord. Now, that's what I would have said, and I did say in those days of wandering, and throughout all my years, in the ever-enlarging spirals of faith and obedience, this process is continuing. To call him Lord does not mean that one has arrived at sinless perfection. It's the sovereignty of God which starts us on this road. He has redeemed us, and he brings Jesus Christ forth from the tomb in a blessing that turns us from our iniquities. This turning is not something that takes us into heaven in the first moment of our conversion. I'm convinced that there is much more analogy in human birth than the theologians have understood. I believe that there may well be a time in the life of each believer when he has already been begotten by the Father according to his sovereign will, and when he has not yet come forth from the darkness of the womb of this mysterious process of the new birth. But be sure of this fact, that when we are brought forth, we are alive in Christ. He has become the Savior, and therefore we believe in him as such. He is the Lord, and it would be impossible not to acknowledge him as such, even in moments when we deny him. For in these moments, the heat generated by the terrible friction of the flesh lusting against the Spirit burns in our wills to make them more like the likeness of Christ's will. The metal of the flesh has a high melting point, but it must melt. The new metal of the spirit cannot be corroded or even flecked by the fires of the flesh. The process goes on and on, and we are ever aware that we were turned from all our wickednesses, even from the first moment. 
and as we come to grips with these wickednesses, our hatred for them grows. Our love for Christ grows. Our knowledge of God's sovereign grace grows. And we're increasingly aware of the living process of sanctification. Now, a man who does not live in such experiences would do well to consider and to make his calling and election sure. The Spirit of God is named the Holy Spirit, and he cannot be in us other than he is. That holiness must ever fashion us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the true meaning of our predestination. God, in his eternal plan, decreed that we should be saved and kept and made holy. We must never forget that our ultimate holiness has a most important part in the eternal design of him who knows, who decrees, and who ordains all things from the beginning. Listen to these verses which tell of his eternal purpose to make us holy. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things, according to the counsel of his will. We who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. O oh, unhappy, unhappy the believer who resists this eternal plan for his holiness. For there is the clearly expressed purpose of the sovereignty of God. He brought Christ forth from the tomb and sent him first to those who had crucified him. He sent him with a process of blessing. That process is to turn us from our iniquities and make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. This process will brook no ultimate interference. The believer who will not bend must be broken. This is an inexorable law of spiritual life. There is a verse in Philippians which says two different things in the King James and the Revised Standard Version. The older version reads in Philippians 1.6, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Revised Standard Version reads, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, which is correct? And the answer is both. For the Greek conveys a meaning that cannot be rendered by a single phrase in English. Its full meaning is that the Lord God who began the work of redemption and confirmation to the life of Christ will not only continue it doing our earthly lifetime, but will definitely complete the work at the coming of Christ. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable his ways. Thou art the sovereign God, and we praise thee that thy plan for us will be accomplished. May we move with thee and not against thee. O Lord, keep us in thy ways that we may know thee better and love thee more. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Understanding the sovereignty of God is of primary importance in the Christian life. This is the key that unlocks a life of unshakable peace, assurance, and confident hope in God. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, First the Lord. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, First the Lord, or simply request message number Q116. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, First Things First. This six-chapter booklet is a study on Christian priorities. If we are to live a successful Christian life, then what are the most important concepts and priorities that we need to grasp concerning God's sovereignty, His Word, the Lordship of Christ, witnessing, fellowship, and repentance? This booklet could easily be read in a short amount of time, but its teachings and applications will last a lifetime. Ask for your complimentary copy of First Things First when you call or write. When you call or write, you may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's books and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, Contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll free 1 800 488 1888, or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Join us again next time 
for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.